Hi, this is Pastor Josh from First Baptist Church, Duquesne. This is our Wednesday night study. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. This is uh, this time we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 17. Now, it's important to remember that Paul has been writing about the importance of unity within the church. Then he transitions as though to say that unity comes from maturity, and disunity grows from immaturity. Similarly, unity grows from maturity, or, or unity grows when we grow. Now, Paul writes about how exactly maturity is supposed to act and think. Starting in verse 17, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he says right there at the beginning of that verse, This I say and testify in the Lord. Paul's emphasizing that his words here are from the Lord and not merely something that he has concocted out of his own thoughts. The Lord led him to send these instructions. He writes that they must no longer walk like the Gentiles. Walk, like meaning to live, to behave. He is telling the Ephesian Christians to not go around acting like the Gentiles, even though there were Gentiles right there in the church. Does that mean then that he wants them to act like Jews? Well, no, not at all. All believers are supposed to act like Christ. In addition, many times that the word Gentiles is used, it is intended to mean a group of unbelieving people. So here it would seem that Paul is telling the church to stop acting like the unbelievers, which they had been doing, and he knows that they had been acting like unbelievers. Paul is not necessarily saying that unbelievers are futile or, or empty themselves. He's saying that their lifestyles do not have eternal benefits. Uh, unbelieving behavior self-deceives, making one think that he is always right rather than dependent upon God always being right. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. So he says there, they are darkened. That's the passive voice there. From the context of the next verse, the, these people, they have darkened themselves. They have intentionally refused to understand. So some of the unbelieving behavior is refusing to understand the things of God. It is as though they set up other systems of thought to explain away God's activity and the truth of the gospel. Remember that this is something that Paul is warning the believers to change about their behavior. Stop trying to explain away God's activity and the truth of the gospel. He then says they alienated themselves from the life of God. That alienated there, that's also in the passive voice. So they estranged themselves from the life God intended. They unfamiliarized themselves purposefully, intentionally. This estrangement occurred because they simply did not know the fullness of the truth of the gospel. But this lack of knowledge came about because of the hardness of their hearts. Hardness, that word there, hardness, it means an unwillingness to learn. The unbelievers, whom the believers are acting like, they have an unwillingness to learn fully from the Lord, which invites ignorance and a refusal to understand the ways of God. Now, this does not mean that they are completely ignorant of all the ways of God, but that they are refusing to learn and apply everything that the Lord is trying to reveal to them. Have you ever been 
freely willing to accept and apply some things from the Lord, but found other things from the Lord more difficult, even to the point of ignoring them? Well, that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. And the point is we need to watch out for any intentional unwillingness to learn from the Lord. Look at verse 19. They became callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So these people, believers acting like unbelievers, they have become callous. That word means to no longer feel shame. They maybe have been uh, uh, desensitized from allowing ungodly influences or from excessive activity themselves. These people have lost the natural warning ability to feel shame for shameful activity. They have willingly surrendered themselves over to sensuality. That word there means extreme sexual immorality. They have adopted the sexual habits and acceptance of the culture rather than the moral standard of their loving Savior. Now, was this just a first century thing, or do Christians today still do this? Well, obviously, this carries over it from then to now. People are still the same. And so when seeing the sexual impurity, the immorality of others, uh, these people, these believers, act like unbelievers, they became greedy or, or covetous. They uh, want to do what they see elsewhere without regard for the impact on others. They would observe or hear of certain kinds of sexual activities, allow their thoughts to be consumed, and want those very things for themselves. Now again, this isn't just a first century thing. Christians still do this today. So then Paul here, he tries to remind them that they were taught a different way, the way of Jesus. They were taught something higher, a better way of life than giving over to the continuously more immoral and dishonorable cultural influences. Paul's basically saying, you guys know better than this because I taught you better than this. Look at the next couple verses. Paul writes, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So Paul writes that he is, of course, assuming that his readers have heard about Jesus, been taught about Jesus, and believe in Jesus. Now remember, this letter is written to the church in Ephesus. So his immediate readers would, would believe themselves to all be Christians. But Paul is saying, if you believe yourselves to be followers of Jesus, then why are you instead following the practices of the sinful world? So if any of us are really believers, Paul is calling on us to act in a manner different from the culture of the world. He says there that we are to put off our old way of doing things. Literally, stop it, cease doing it. We're to stop copying the sinful activities that spring from the unbelieving heart because it's part of a life that we are no longer to have. That kind of lifestyle contains behaviors that are not honoring to the Lord, nor are they from the Lord. Paul says this kind of lifestyle is corrupt. It's perverted. It, it ruins. It destroys. It's wasteful. This kind of lifestyle attempts to waste and destroy everyone it can touch by introducing desires that lie and deceive. The father, the father of lies, the enemy, 
from John 8:44. The enemy will do everything he can to deceive anyone and everyone about what this kind of lifestyle will provide. Look at verses 23 and 24. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the believers then, rather than copying the lives of unbelievers, the believers are to be renewed. Again, the passive voice. They're to be made new. They're to be made different. They're to be better on the outside, or they're to be made better by an outside source. In this case, that is Jesus. So we are supposed to allow Jesus by his spirit through our salvation to make our minds new, different, and better than they were before and new, different, and better than they would be otherwise without Jesus. His influence on us is supposed to make a remarkable difference in our actions and our thoughts. Whereas the world's culture has a remarkable influence on the actions and thoughts of unbelievers, Jesus is supposed to have an infinitely more significant influence on the thoughts and actions of believers. Previously, Paul instructed to put off the old self, to stop copying the actions and thoughts of unbelievers, but rather we are to put on the new self or start copying the righteousness and holiness of God. This is a really remarkable statement that Paul is making here. When a person believes in Jesus, that person is recreated after the image of God rather than the image of the world's culture. Humanity was originally created in the image of God, but when sin entered the world, that image was corrupted, and we began to create people ourselves in our own image. So when we believe in the truth of the gospel, we are created a second time. The corruption of our old self is painstakingly removed by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, and we are remade as we were originally intended, in perfection, in holy unity with the Father. Uh, Now, in the next few verses, Paul gives some specific examples of lifestyle actions that are to be taken and others that are to be put on. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So again, certain lifestyle actions that we're supposed to take away and other lifestyle actions we're supposed to put on. Well, this is an example of something we're supposed to take away. Having put away falsehood, put it, gotten rid of it, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul begins by speaking about honesty. The word that he uses for having put away is the same word that he used in verse 22 for put off. So stopping it, ceasing. So he's saying that lying is an activity of the unbelieving heart that the believer is supposed to leave behind when allegiance is given to Jesus. Naturally, one would assume that if you were following the way of Jesus, then you would not lie because Jesus would not lie. But what makes this so unique is that Paul's reasoning here is not merely stop lying because it's wrong. He he points to unity. Stop lying, for we are members of one another. Lying to one another breaks the bonds of love that Jesus set in place with his death and resurrection. When we choose to break the bonds of love, we introduce disunity into what Jesus meant to be unified. Now, as we saw 
previously, Paul is not justifying someone speaking what they perceive to be facts in a weaponized manner. That is just as disunifying and dishonoring as lying, for both are selfish and prideful and sinful. The emphasis in Paul's instructions here is both love and unity. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 4, verse 4. There are many who use this passage as justification for their own feelings and outward expressions of anger in certain situations. And Paul certainly seems to give permission to anger here. However, we should never interpret Scripture through the lens of our modern-day experience. Scriptures can speak to our modern experience and instruct our modern experience, but experience makes a poor interpreter of God's Word. Rather, God's Word should interpret our experiences. For instance, in Psalm 37, 8, the psalmist writes, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. So, refrain from it completely. James 1, 19-20 says, To be slow to anger, this is the key, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James goes even further and calls anger moral filthiness and rampant wickedness. So what he's saying is that a person with God's word implanted in him is not influenced by anger. Now, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. In some passages, like James 1, Psalm 37, saying, Do not be angry. And then here in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he's saying, Be angry and do not sin. He's not being contradictory at all. Uh, while it may seem what really is going on here is that it seems as though he is acknowledging our weakness as human beings to succumb to the temptation towards anger. So then we must get a handle on the anger when we feel it rising within us, because it is a rapid pathway to sin. Now, Paul is not at all saying, as some teachers currently do say, that anger itself is not sin, because look at verse 27. Paul outright says that anger is an opportunity to the devil to have his way with you. See, anger is surrendering control of your faculties to something other than the Spirit of God. Just as James said in James 1.20 that we just looked at, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If the anger of a person is incapable of producing the glorifying righteousness of God, then it is in no way a good thing. Anger seems to serve similarly to temptation. You see, temptation that is contemplated, mulled over, and considered, that kind of temptation is sin. For if we have already committed the act in our hearts, even if not physically, then it is still sin. Similarly, anger that is contemplated, mulled over, and considered is sin. So it must be squashed. Otherwise, we leave the door wide open for the enemy who is prowling right outside, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 In 1 Corinthians 9.7, Paul says that he makes his body submit to how he wants to live and act rather than submit to whatever base whim pops into his head to tempt him away from the path that God has set him on. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, 
but of power and love and self-control. So the indwelling spirit within each and every believer enables the power of self-control. In those moments when our anger overpowers our love, we are refusing to let ourselves be driven and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are choosing our emotions rather than God's glory and ultimate purpose. Look at verse 28. Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So still talking about activities in the lives of Christians, Paul speaks to something that was commonly done among many, the practice of stealing. You know, even the practice of stealing, it was beyond merely pickpocketing or shoplifting or burglary. The idea is implied in, in Paul's address here is, is uh, throughout the rest of this verse, is anything that is less than completely honest in our occupational practice, such as overcharging or taking more than you paid for. Essentially, doing anything that is less than completely honest as though you were interacting with Jesus himself. So then Paul takes this instruction even further. He says that diligently working is not simply making money to provide for your own needs, wants, aspirations, and luxuries. Paul says that the Christian is supposed to have a job to make money for the purpose of generously giving to others. So generosity through selflessness. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we're instructed to let no corrupting talk out of our mouths. Now, corrupting, that word means harmful or rotting or decaying. Negative words or discouraging words can sit within a person, cause the rotting or decay of their heart and mind. This is a dangerous place for the believer to be in. If we continually, continually speak words of decay into the lives of other people, we can very easily lead them away from Jesus, one sentence at a time. And the thing about words is that we may not even think that what we are saying is all that negative or discouraging, but to the person to whom we say them, even if they do not react poorly initially, those words we speak may live in the back of their mind to be used as a strategic weapon by the enemy in the quiet moments. Because words are dangerous. They can live forever etched in the memory of anyone, even those we may consider to be the strongest among us. Words should never leave our mouths carelessly. Because the weight with which they can land in the hearts of our hearers can be extremely weighty. Rather, what comes out of our mouths should only ever build up, encourage, and freely distribute grace to our hearers. That word build up there means to build up, to edify, to strengthen. In Luke 4.22, Jesus, uh, it, it, the verse there speaks of Jesus' own grace-filled words. And we, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be imitators of Jesus in all respects, even in his speech. So even though we live in a culture where we are trained to tear people down in the lauded effort of speaking our minds, unless the words coming out of our mouth give grace, we are to refrain from using them at all. Verse 30, 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, the Spirit of God resides in every believer. The Spirit of God is the presence of God walking through the life with each Christian. So when the Christian does the things that Paul has just been mentioning, among others, we grieve the Spirit. Paul, his use in the Greek here brings great emphasis on the word holy. God's Spirit with each of us is perfectly holy. So grief is the natural reaction to the holy. When we proceed to engage in unholy actions all while he is present with us, we are supposed to be influenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit instead of ignoring his presence altogether. The Spirit is with us through the remainder of this life, so we are meant to act like it and be and allow His influence to guide our actions and words. Then we will be able to do the following when the Spirit is showing us the way. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Here, Paul gives us a list of six actions that have no room in the life of the Christian. They are to be intentionally removed through dedication to the Lord and the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let's walk through them. He says, uh, let all bitterness, this is where he starts, bitterness. That means resentfully bitter heart that does not desire unity in the Spirit. He says, put away wrath. That's rage, fury, outbursts of anger. And then just straight anger, which he already spoke about specifically in verses 26 and 27. Then he says, clamor. That is, a, a, a loud, angry outcry. Uh, Finley uh, defines the loud uh, defines this as the loud uh, self-assertion of the angry man who will make everyone hear his grievance. You know anybody like that? Somebody uh, will declare a loud self-assertion in their anger, making everyone hear their own personal grievance. That's what that word clamor means. Then he says slander. That's blasphemy. That's slander. That's evil speaking. That's defamation. That's any sort of negative comment about someone else, whether it's true or not. Then he says malice. That is wicked trouble that is felt towards or between people. That's hateful feelings. So these actions, Bitterness in our heart that does not desire unity. That's rage, outbursts of anger, anger itself, loud, angry outcry, trying to make everyone hear our own personal grievance, speaking negatively about somebody else or or hateful feelings within us. These kinds of actions are not the actions of someone who is following Jesus in humility towards glory and grace, but rather they are all very selfish and self-serving. The believer is meant for greater things, as he says in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So in contrast to verse 31, Paul gives us here the counterpoint. This is how the Christian is supposed to act. We are to express kindness and tender-heartedness and compassion. Uh, tender-heartedness means compassion, means love. Kindness is an expression of a heart filled with the love of Christ. And so if we allow Christ's love to consume our hearts, it will come out in actions of kindness, 
to everyone we encounter. Unkindness is the result of a lack of focus on Christ's love. But kindness is not always easy. And that's possibly why Paul included the third instruction in verse 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, because where there is forgiveness, there is love. And where there is love, there is kindness. Forgiveness springs from love, and love motivates kindness. They are all foundational actions for the life of the follower of Jesus. So we are told to be kind to one another, not just to a specific set of people or even just to those who were kind to us first, but we are to be kind and forgiving to everyone, irregardless of their actions towards us. Because in truth, that is exactly what Jesus did in coming and dying and raising. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. He acted first. Our actions and words towards each other should come from how Jesus acted and spoke to us with great kindness, tenderheartedness, and unqualified forgiveness. So that is Ephesians 4, 17-32. Next time, we're going to take a look at what comes next. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you next time.